Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. Today's guest is someone I met through the meditation community a few years ago. I loved her energy and how she made practicing meditation seem fun, beneficial, and not so woo-woo. Last year, Emily Fletcher posted a video about miscarriage and meditation, and I immediately contacted her to get her on the show. I'm excited to share this conversation with Emily because I know infertility isn't an illness, but it's certainly invisible. So welcome, Emily. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you here. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. I'm so fancy. I'm so <laughs> famous in the meditation circles where everyone so has their famous. eyes closed. Come on. <laughs> I love it's that. It's so funny because I'm like, wait, why am I not on Instagram? I'm like, oh, because every time I give a talk, everyone's eyes are closed and they would feel like real assholes if they're like live streaming the meditation. That's hysterical. <laughs> but you should give a little shout out to Ziva PDM. M. Well, we, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, Ziva PDM. Yeah, we did the public. I love that. Explain Thank what you. that is, please. Well, we did the public display of meditation campaign. Just because when I started teaching, believe it or not, it, it was still really taboo to say you meditated and people were hiding it and people felt weird about doing it at work or doing it in public. And so I was like, you guys, this is ridiculous. Like, we just have to stop this. And so I started the PDM campaign, the public display of meditation. So if you ever found yourself meditating in a public place, I was like, just snap a little photo afterwards and hashtag Ziva PDM. And we have them now at the Wailing Wall, the CN Tower. We have them from like hot air balloons and uh, drones video footage of people doing it where it goes all the way out like seemingly into space we have some oh, cool stuff so now. cool oh we got hugh jackman backstage at the tonys we got all these broadway shows it was fun and you also have a great sweatshirt that you sell on your website that Thank ties you. into this which is so we have this amazing custom long hoodie that covers your whole face it says fuck off i'm meditating i love it so <laughs> much because again it's just like you guys this is great for planes it's great for if you're in a bright room with no shades it's also great for sleeping so you don't get puffy like uh smush marks on your face from an smush eye mask <laughs> love that i Real. literally stare at that all the time i go to the website and it just makes me smile so much <laughs> i need to purchase one. one we can get you one thank you um okay so ziva yes what is ziva so ziva is a sanskrit word that means bliss and it's also the name of my company. We have this beautiful center here in New York and Soho. And we also created the world's first online meditation training, which I'm really proud of. And we're smack dab in the middle of our book launch. And so it's basically meditation for high performance. And like you said, we like to take the woo-woo out of it. It's like, hey, guys, we meditate to get good at life, not to get good at meditation. Sadly, no one cares if you're a good meditator because... I'm very competitive and I like to be the best at things and no one cares. Um, but we teach live, online, and th now through the book. And it's basically all about making you self-sufficient. It's about giving you the tools so that you can practice anywhere, anytime without an app or a guy playing a gong on your chest or whatever else, whatever other props people think of to meditate. You know, headbands, like rings. It's like, what if you just close your eyes and do it? But anyway, we teach a trifecta of mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting. The three M's, as I like to call it. And you got into this because you needed it really badly. I Can did. you give us a little bit about that? Yeah, I used to be on Broadway for 10 years. And my last job was understudying three of the lead roles. 
which means you have no idea which character you're going to play each night. It's very stress-inducing. I started having insomnia and anxiety and going gray at 26. Vow meditation, it cured my insomnia on the first day. I stopped going gray. I stopped getting sick. I didn't get sick for eight and a half years. And so I was like, y'all, why is everyone not doing this? Left Broadway, went to India, started a three-year teacher training, and then opened up Ziva. And since then, I've taught 15,000 people to meditate. 15,000? Yeah, dude. You personally. Well, I've taught... Three or so face-to-face -face, and then the other online. So people who have moved through our whole 15-day training online. That's unbelievable. Who are like in our groups and, and doing it. That's huge. I mean, I wish that everyone in the world just could snap their fingers and learn to meditate. And you're providing this course and access to people all around the world. Thanks. It's huge. Yeah. I'm real, real excited about the ripple effect of it. Yeah. So let's get into what I brought you in here for. Let's Fun talk about things. miscarriage. <laughs> Just hands. Fun word. Oh. So you got pregnant on your first try. But you soon well, experienced, no? I did, but I just, fun backstory <laughs> that I did not share in the video is that we did a full fertility ceremony, not because we were dealing with infertility, but I just wanted to like celebrate this moment where we were consciously like trying to not get pregnant or, you know, we're, we're, trying, we're not trying to try or whatever that double negative is. Um, so I, I thought that was an important moment. And so I met this woman at this hilarious I gave this talk for a group of potentially the richest women on the planet Earth. And this one woman kept asking all these questions. And I was like, who are you? What are you? And she was like this secret shaman who had studied uh, like indigenous shamanism from Hawaii and indigenous cultures from Australia. Anyway, she's a full-blown shaman uh, hiding out in this Upper East Side apartment, by the way. <laughs> Wait, what is happening? And she said, no, I do these fertility ceremonies. And I told her that my husband and I were about to get on the baby train. And so we were going to do it in person, which is weird enough. But then her mom got sick. And so we did it over Skype, which there's nothing weirder than a fertility ceremony via oh Skype. <laughs> and again, so I have this husband who is like hilariously data-oriented, strategic, left brain, analytical. And God bless him for doing this ceremony with me. And she was like, yeah, just get some rose petals and an egg and some seeds. And I was like, oh, here we go. And y'all, I know I'm a meditation teacher, but I'm, I really pride myself on not being hippy-dippy and woo-woo, but this was up there. On and the... are you glad you did it? Yeah, it was beautiful. I mean, yes, there was chanting and weird stuff, but it was also some very practical things that I think a lot of people should do when they start this, this process. And she basically asked us to write down our fears about becoming parents. And we said them out loud. And then she did some chants and like wrote them down and burned them up. Um, you know, just if, so what if you wrote down your fear about becoming a parent on a piece of paper and then burned it? Like, that's not that weird. You know, it's just bringing the fear into the manifest and then destroying it. And then she had us talk about the things we were most excited about being parents. And then we did a visualization where we imagined like almost like a slide from the unmanifest from the ether into our lives and we just pictured this baby just sliding right into our lives and and then she was not ps involved during the actual intercourse part of the story <laughs> we, so glad you have yeah. to give that little disclaimer <laughs> yeah we closed the computer for that part of the story um but yeah we got pregnant that night Whoa. It was also a full moon and it was my birthday and it was like a lot of weird things. But yeah. Okay, so what happened 
next. So, okay. So we had this like hilarious ceremony and had sex that night. And then a month later, I got my period. And I was like, okay, well, no big deal. You know, it was, I'm glad we did the ceremony, but I wasn't in the like, oh, no, we're not pregnant. Like, you know, it was our first try. So I had my period like usual. And then I, my period usually lasts like four or five days. And then it started, it went six days, and then seven days, and then eight days, and then nine days. And after about 17 days, I was still bleeding. And then I started having some cramping and it felt weird. And so I was like, this is not normal. Let me go to the doctor. And so I posted on Facebook, hey, who has a good OBGYN? And I went to see someone and she said, you know what this probably is, is a chemical pregnancy. That's where the sperm hits the egg but doesn't implant. So you fertilize the egg, but you don't actually implant in the uterine lining. And she said, they're very common. And so she said, let's just draw your blood. We'll test it for pregnancy hormones. So she did. And... I left and then I left her office and I was driving to lead a retreat that weekend with our mutual friend NQ. Do you know NQ? No. Oh, he's this amazing spoken word poet. He and I were Someone doing Someone I this. need to know. Oh, he's so good. He's so good. Uh, we did this creativity and meditation workshop together. It was a weekend long retreat. And on the way to the retreat, the doctor calls me and says, so yeah, your pregnancy hormones are at 3000. So this does seem like you were pregnant and it seems like you're having a miscarriage and, you know, things might, the bleeding might get more intense, but things should pass. But why don't you come in again on Monday? And it was amazing how upset I got instantaneously where I didn't even know I was pregnant. And yet finding out that I was having a miscarriage was devastating because it was like finding out the yes and the no at the same time. And and I was just shocked that something that I hadn't even gotten excited about hypothetically felt so devastating emotionally. I was also at this point like pretty weak. It had been like 18 days of, of severe bleeding and now pretty intense pain. And also funnily enough, when I found out intellectually that I was having the miscarriage, the physical plane got so much more like stronger. So like, as I'm driving to this retreat, I was like doubled over in pain. And I remember getting to the retreat center and my staff was there because they had already been, you know, setting up and telling them like, hey, you guys, like this is what's going on. Like I'm really going to need some help through this weekend because when I leave retreats, it's 6 a.m. until midnight. I am on. And it's also I have to hold space for the people who are there. And it's it's fun, but it's intense. Did you automatically go into that mode that you have to tell them? I knew I had to tell my team for me because I needed them to step up in a way that they had never, I mean, they were amazing, but I just needed them to step up and hold space and to take care of me. Like I needed to be taken care of. And so I wanted them to know. And I told NQ because he and I were driving to the retreat place together and then that night, I told my husband, I called him after we'd done like the first four or five hours of the retreat. Why do you think you waited? Was that intentional? Well, there was just no space. Like I was in the car with other people and it just, and then when I got there, it was like walking into the room with 25 people who had paid a lot of money to be on this thing. Right. So you I'm couldn't not, say I need a half hour to go talk to my husband. Not really. Got it. And I think that also like once you sort of say that out loud and admit it, it's like real in a new way. And so I, I I needed to do that where I had time and space. Yeah. Um, and what else? I just remember really wanting a steak. Like I remember my team went and got me a steak. <laughs> I was just like so weak, and I needed like bl- I needed iron and blood. How did you handle the rest of that weekend? Uh, I mean, honestly, I was very proud of myself. Um, I think it, it was an amazing retreat. It was one of the most powerful, impactful retreats I've ever been a part of. 
And, and part of that is because I think the meditation and poetry creation is so powerful together because the type of meditation that I teach can very much create a bit of a healing catharsis and it can create a lot of what we call unstressing where sadness and rage can come up and out. And to have this creative outlet for people to put that energy was a beautiful combination. And I actually wrote about it. I should have brought that. Maybe I'll record it. We can do an addendum. But I wrote a poem about it and that was really healing to be able to write it out. Uh, I did not read that poem on the retreat. Like, I didn't tell the attendees that I was going through this. Um, but do you feel like you were in such a vulnerable state that weekend that it made you that much better of a teacher? I don't know. It's possible. But it's also possible that I, like, shut down and went into rock star mode. And I don't know which it was. I'm going to assume there was a level of vulnerability because the retreat – I mean, it was palpable, like just everyone else's visceral experience was so intense that whatever I did didn't seem to be counterproductive, at least for them. Got it. Mm -hmm. So I wrote an article probably three or so years ago for our mutual friend Mark Krasner's website, Expectful, which I know you do some good stuff with. Mm -hmm. And I wrote an article called Shame on Sharing. And it was all about how people have shame about sharing about miscarriage and when they decide to tell people that they're pregnant. And I remember I wrote in this article when my best friend told me she was pregnant, like very few weeks in. And I was like, oh, my God, why are you telling me this? She said, because if something happens, I'd want you to be there with me, good or bad. That's, you know, why you're looped in. And I wrote this article about it because I just thought it's such a fascinating topic that people hold this to them. And everyone's got their different ways of handling that. And I respect that. But tell me your thoughts on how and when you decide to share information like a miscarriage. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you that philosophically, I don't understand why we all decided that three months in is when you can share about your pregnancy. And and I think because of this sort of societal taboo, it's actually made it more intense and more scary and more shameful and more embarrassing for people. So I really don't know why we all just decided like, okay, well, after three months, then you can tell. Because agreed, it's like if something happens, if you have a miscarriage, which is so common, so common, you want your friends and family, you need their support. Now, I also understand that, you know, because now having been through it again, like because I've been through another pregnancy since and we did wait, but that was largely to tell people. And that was largely my husband's request because he's much more private than I am. But also I think the newness of having gone through the miscarriage and maybe that's why because they are so common that then when you do get pregnant, people are holding their breath a little bit. So that could be why the societal norm is there. But I'm all for sharing. I'm all for telling if you feel comfortable. And I've had I've been on the other side of that, too, where I walked up to this guy where one of his wife was a client of mine and she shared with me that she was pregnant very early on. And I went up to him. I saw him on the street. I was like, hey, congratulations. And he was like, oh, you haven't heard. And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> I feel like everyone has one of those stories. Yeah. How are you supposed to know? Yeah. And and so it's like if we were to get rid of the shame around miscarriage, like would that awkwardness go away? And would we then just be like, yeah, I'm pregnant. I'm four weeks in. Or, you know, hey, I had a miscarriage. Like we're trying again. Like it's just we act like there's something wrong. And just like if someone dies, it's not a secret. You know, people come out. They have funerals. They love you. They bring you food. They bring you flowers because it, it you want your community around you. So I think yeah. it's a protective thing, though. I mm -hmm. think people are afraid of – 
what advice they're going to receive from outside people, whether it's your best friends or your family, mm-hmm. that people are going to have their opinions on how you should be handling this. Mm-hmm. So they're protecting themselves to a certain extent. And I'm certainly not defending it because I do think you find your select core friends or family members to support you. But it's just an interesting thing that people do. So when did you come out with having a miscarriage? Was this once you had a successful pregnancy? No, okay. I talked about it right away. But the, the rest of the story though with the miscarriage is pretty crazy. Um, so go on the retreat over the weekend and, you know, I'm bleeding, like thinking I'm having a miscarriage. And I and I go back to the doctor on Monday because she wants to check my blood again. And, they, you know, they were at 3,000 on Friday. And I don't know what the name of the hormone is. But then on Monday, she takes my blood again and they've gone up to 6,000. And so I was like, that's weird because now I'm like 20 something days into bleeding. And she said, you need to go to the hospital. You need to have a proper ultrasound. We have to figure out what's going on. So I go to the hospital a couple of days later, still bleeding, by the way. And they're like, oh, yeah, here's the heartbeat. And I was like, what are you saying right now? I was like, I've been bleeding now for 23 days. How am I pregnant? And they're like, well, you are. You're six weeks pregnant. And and here's the heartbeat. And, and I was like, what's happening then? And apparently I had an intrauterine hematoma, which is what was causing the bleeding, uh, which is not necessarily dangerous to the baby, but that was what was causing the bleeding. And so then we're so I go home and I tell my husband, I'm like, so I guess we're pregnant, question mark. And he was like, what? And we've just been through like five days of mourning the loss of the pregnancy, and now I'm pregnant. And so then we're real touch and go, and and we're like, t- like tentatively, skeptically pregnant, and we just keep going to the doctor. And each time we're sort of expecting it to not be there because I bled for like a lot longer. And then, and they also put me on bed rest. And if you know anything about me, like that, I mean, I I live my life. Like I, I do a lot of things, and uh, you know, I tend to work like thirteen hour days, and I'm very active. And so, bed rest was not really a cute look for me. And then you couldn't take baths. You can't have sex. You can't have baths. You can't exercise. You can't be up and around walking uh, too much. So, how long was that that you were on bed rest? I don't. I've kind of blocked it out, but I don't. I didn't really listen to it, but. Um, I mean, I wasn't exercising. I didn't have sex. I didn't have baths, but I would still like work. I was just really right. gentle with the body. Uh, and so then we, you know, we kept getting normal checkups and that was six weeks pregnant. And then I think we went on to like our regular like 12 week visit. So this is now we're at the end of the first trimester. We're three months in. This is the time where you can start to share the news. And I think we're going into like get the gender or something. And we go to get the ultrasound. Not we. I went by myself to this one. And we go and she's doing the ultrasound. I can see that her face is kind of weird. And then she excuses herself and she comes back and she has someone else look at the sonogram. And then and then she said, there's there's no heartbeat. And and like it was devastating because even though I've been through it once, it was like now we've been through like now 12 weeks of, okay, we are pregnant. And. So anyway, it was really sad when she said that I was not pregnant. And I remember like really crying a lot of times in her office. And then I left her office and I didn't tell my husband yet. And I remember I got on a bike. I like got a city bike, which I don't even have a membership. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to get a city what? bike. And also I hadn't been on a bike in a long time because you can't bike ride really when you're pregnant. Certainly not when you're on bed rest. And so I was like, fuck it, I'm biking. (laughs) I biked from like the Upper West Side all the way down to like the bottom of the island and then back up to the West Village. It was a beautiful day. And and then I don't know why I just wanted to bike. (laughs) 
And then I got home and I told my husband and and it, and that was really sad too. I think I thought, well, once I get home, once I bike it out, I will like process this and accepted it and then I could like tell him and not be super upset. But that was not true. I was super upset. Like sharing it with him was really sad. And we both just cried and then and then I don't know what happened. I think I don't know. We were just like, okay, well here we are. And then we we wanted to take a couple of months to kind of replenish the soil, you know, just like let everything heal. And how did oh, you heal? Oh, but I did have to do a DNC. So I was pregnant enough to where the, my OB didn't want to like just let it pass because she said sometimes that can lead to a lot of bleeding and then scar tissue. And if you want to get pregnant, it's, she said better for me to just go in and schedule it versus having to do it in an emergency situation if you, you know, like miscarry so like that sucks because then you're at the hospital for like 12 hours getting basically an abortion and i mean it is an abortion it's just a euphemism for it is a dnc so anyway that was not fun well that's so much in such a short amount of time mm -hmm. so how did you process that i mean i assume your meditation practice did you take it up a notch i mean did it remain as is what did that look like for you I did not take it up a notch. And that's an important point, I think, is that in the meditation that I teach, it's such a he powerful healing tool. And it is so good at getting rid of stress in the body that if you start meditating more, certainly in high demand, high trauma times, it can you can like be crying in the corner and not able to leave your house. So I just got really, really religious with it. You know, so just 20 minutes twice a day, like no matter what. And, and the beautiful thing about this practice is that it's so good at allowing you to access the new now. Right. It's like you feel it, you feel it fully, you purge it completely, and then you move on to the new now. So it was really sad. And telling my husband was really sad. And I cried. I remember I called my best friend and I cried and I called my mom and my sister and I cried. And and I just, you know, I told the people in my life that knew and and cried and cried and cried. And then I don't really it felt like in a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks. I genuinely felt like I had moved through it and I could be lying to myself. I could be in denial and that's not to judge anybody else's process, but it did feel like it moved very quickly to where like in a couple of weeks I was like, yeah, I had a miscarriage and I was talking about it and it didn't feel hot to the touch. And, you know, I mean, even now, like when I really dig into those memories of like telling my husband, like I maybe missed up a little bit, but it does not feel like this open gaping wound that I've like just put some padding on top of like it feels healed. Obviously, this is the first and only time that you've had this happen, but have there been other instances in your life where you handled things similarly or just sort of managed it for a certain amount of time and then moved on? Because it sounds pretty clear that you you didn't ignore the pain. You managed it properly or however you needed to do it. But have there been other instances? I'm not making sense, but do you no, understand yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, like is this normal for me to process traumatic events there you go. quickly? Yes. <laughs> Thank you for being the interviewer. I'll, I'll just interview myself and answer my own questions. <laughs> I actually do that a surprising amount of times. <laughs> like podcast, like, you know, like, what are they called? Interviews? Yep. Written interviews. Um, <laughs> now, now who's now using who their words? Now how to use words. It's me. It's me. Um, okay. So, yes, I would say that I think my next book might be called The New Now and talking exactly about this phenomenon, how meditation allows you to feel things, feel it fully, and then move on to the new now. Because it's not about not getting stressed. That's not the point of meditation. It's not designed to make you not human. It is designed to get you present. And if you're in the middle of a trauma, 
be traumatized, feel it, be sad, be angry, you know, cry, nap, do whatever you need to do to get it up and out. But once it's passed, we don't need to hold on to it like a trophy or a treasure. And I think it's actually when people don't have meditation techniques, then when they have so much accumulated stress from their past and that overdeveloped left brain, which the left brain's job is to review the past and rehearse the future. So most of us are living our lives in this chronic state of fight or flight and protecting ourselves from all the potential trauma in the future. And if you're in that space, then it's very hard to let go of the past because you're terrified of the future. And that is the opposite of what meditation does. Yeah. No, I think that's really valuable. I think a lot of people would read that book. So I think you should write it. Okay. Um, so we were talking before you came in today about you now have a son. Mm-hmm. So you had a successful pregnancy. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like when you found out you were pregnant? And were you able to be excited about it off the bat? Good question. So it was it was not that long after. It was just a few months after. And it was a little bit of a surprise. Like we weren't, quote unquote, trying yet because we just needed a minute to emotionally heal, replenish the soil. And, you know, just we had not officially started trying. So when I got pregnant, it was a little bit of a surprise. And <laughs> yep, you want to he want things I've never told on air before. I've never shared before. Here you go. Uh, I was meeting some friends in Central Park. And we were all going to do mushrooms in the park. <laughs> and P.S., this is not an ad for doing mushrooms. And like my rule on drugs is like if the pros outweigh the cons, then have fun. And I do not think that drugs alone can usher you into higher states of consciousness. But I do think they can give you a window into what it feels like to be in higher states of consciousness. And if you are simultaneously doing the work to eradicate that stress from your nervous system, then I think it can be a beneficial tool. In this case, it was just a fun day in the park. Uh, and so as I'm wa- I'm getting on the train to go to Central Park and on my way there, something in me was like, why don't you just pop in this drugstore and get a pregnancy test? And so I pop into the drugstore, get a pregnancy test, go there, meet my friend there early, go into the public bathroom in Central Park, pee on a stick real quick, and it came back real pregnant real fast. And so then I go and meet my friends and my husband, and I'm in a little bit of shock. And so again, I'm just keeping it to myself, and I pretended to take mushrooms. Oh, my God. (laughs) Because it was like, I was even with your husband, even with my husband, because like I was one who had organized the whole day and I didn't want to be like a bummer. And it was such a beautiful day. And so I was like, down the hatch. But I just didn't take him, obviously. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's incredible. Uh, And so we had a great day. It was super fun. Do all those people know that you? Yep, they sure do. (laughs) They knew I was faking it. By the way, wow. Okay. And P.S., it's not hard. Like if everyone else is on mushrooms and it's a beautiful day and you're having a great time, it's super fun and and you're giggly and laughy anyway. So it was fine. So were you more giggly and laughy than usual because you were pregnant? I mean, I think I was tripping my own weird trip because like, oh, my whole reality is about to change and is changing. And oh, my gosh, what is this real? Should I say it? Should I not say it? Like, you know, all of the things. And uh, and so then I think the next day, oh, this is funny. I think it's <laughs> funny. Uh, we had named the previous baby um, Schrodinger's baby. Do you know the the physicist Schrodinger? So, Wrong person to ask that to. <laughs> Sorry. Well, there's a physicist named Schrodinger, and he had a famous experiment called Schrodinger's cat, where basically there's – if you, like, follow this line of physics all the way down to the end – it's, a, it's an experiment where you put a thing of poison in a box with a cat 
And then you look at the probability of something happening to the vial of poison and does the cat die or not. And then there's this one physics equation where the cat can be both alive and dead at the same time. And so we joked and we started calling the baby Schrodinger's baby because it was like, oh, my God, at the same time. I love that you're able to laugh about this, Emily. Look, I mean, what else are you supposed to do? I love it. I agree. I mean, because it was just like every time it was like, I'm pregnant. I'm not pregnant. I'm pregnant. I'm not pregnant. And I'm pretty sure I'm forgetting some details because of my pregnancy hormones. But there was like some other yes no scenarios in the first pregnancy to where it was just like what is going on so anyway when I told my husband that I was pregnant I got a cat a stuffed cat and I put it in a box (laughs) (laughs) and I took a pregnancy test and I tied it to its neck like a like a collar (laughs) and so I was like um Schrodinger's babies (laughs) and he was like you're a freak (laughs) wow but yeah. this one stuck. Yeah, this one stuck. He's and a, now you got a new one. You've got a seven-month-old. Seven-month-old son named Jasper who is amazing. I love it. I love your photos that you post on social media. Yep. And so when you came in, you were talking postpartum. Yeah. What's that been like? Oh, brutal. Brutal. I mean, brutal. That's the only word that I can describe it as is just brutal. What did you know going into it and what's been surprising to you? I mean... I, what I knew going into it is that it wasn't going to happen to me. <laughs> I was like, I'm a meditation teacher. I've been meditating for 11 years. I've been practicing Ayurveda for seven. I've taken every supplement that's ever been invented. I've done all the smoothies, all of the things. I've taken all the classes. I'm on the board of a meditation for postpartum app. Like, come on, people. And then it brought me to my knees. I will say I had a great pregnancy. So thank you, meditation. It really did. I mean, I didn't have a lick of sickness. I was not that tired. Tired. I my, my body was great, strong, healthy, happy. So pregnancy was great. And then and I wrote a whole course called The Blissful Birth because I'm super into pregnancy. I have been for years. I've been obsessed with labor and delivery for a long time. And so I was ready to like have my blissful birth and then hit send on this online course and send it out into the land. And then I had a four-day back labor which I didn't know what back labor meant, hadn't even done any studying what or preparing for it. Well, I'm not sure if what I had was technically a back labor, but I'll tell you what I had is that I had no contractions in my uterus. I had no sensation or feeling in my vagina. All of it was in my lower back. So four days of contractions all in my QL, which is that like muscle that connects your spine to your hips. And it was extraordinary and excruciating and I'm not kidding when I say four days. I went into labor Wednesday night. I had the baby on Sunday afternoon. Oh, God. And they did everything they could to induce labor. It was balloons and like, which is when they shove a balloon in your vagina and inflate it to make you dilate because I wasn't dilated. So for three days, I was basically not dilated at all. And I had been in active labor. I mean, contractions every three to four minutes. So then they gave me Pitocin, which is a chemical to like – intensify the labor and I was terrified of Pitocin and it did intensify the labor and after like a day and a half of that then finally we got an epidural and an hour later he was born which I really didn't want to have an epidural but at that point I was like thank you thank you thank you and so yeah he was born and I ended up having a vaginal birth but it was with an epidural and then he was jaundiced, which means that he has high levels of bilirubin. And the only thing that will clear that is like them eating a lot. They have to eat and drink a lot of breast milk. And so he, I was trying to feed him as much as possible, but I was not making enough milk. And then he lost 10% of his body weight, which if you get to the 10% mark, then everybody gets nervous. And so I had to stay in the hospital an extra day. 
And this is from someone who wanted to basically be at home in a pool. Like, I didn't even want to be at a hospital at all. But it's confirmation that you can have a plan and things don't go as planned. And you're a meditation teacher who knows how to handle this stuff. Yeah, bingo, bingo. Like, not not according to plan. Uh, and I had also read all of the books on labor. And so, anyway, he I wasn't producing enough milk. And so... But we, we sort of powered through and I just nursed like every hour, every hour and a half. And we finally cleared his Billy Rubin, his John is cleared. We got home and I kept telling all the lactation consultants. I was like, this feels I was like, I know it's like going to feel like it hurts the nursing thing, but this feels extra. And they were like, well, we'll check for a tongue tie, but he definitely doesn't have a tongue tie. And a tongue tie is when the, the frenulum, that little string on the bottom of your tongue is not long enough to, to nurse properly because it's actually the tongue that does the nursing. It's not the lips. <sighs> and so they checked for tongue tie. didn't have a tongue tie, but it was hurting pretty bad. And so I was like, all right, I'll just power through. And I put on my Broadway dancer shoes and just kept powering through. If they're as cool as these shoes you're wearing today, I mean. I've got really good shoes on, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be sure to post them on Instagram along with our photo. Yes. (laughs) So then what happened after that? Oh, yeah. Then my stitches came out. And then I got mastitis, which is when you have blocked ducts. And then then you get the flu, like, which is just – unbelievable because you're not sleeping you're up every two hours three hours nursing and then like my boobs were like engorged and then I got mastitis which is like the flu and then also my stitches came out and then I got a sty and oh my he was God, hungry like he wasn't getting enough food so he was screaming all the time I mean it just was like it just I mean really knocked me to my knees and then you know your hormones are changing and so you're just like crying 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 and I don't even know if it was postpartum depression or if it was just the normal hormonal flux. I don't think that anyone really knows the difference when you're in it. Dear Lord, it's really intense. Um, and so finally, we saw a fourth lactation consultant, and she finally diagnosed that he had a tongue tie. So we went and got it fixed. We had it, so we had its tongue lasered, and then that day, within five minutes, he could nurse again. So then that like the mastitis cleared, I I was able to breastfeed. Also, I, I started giving him formula, which I really did not want to do, and that was emotionally devastating for me. Um, and so anyway, thing by thing, it just started clearing up. Like I went and got my stitches fixed. We started supplementing with formula so he wasn't so hungry, got the tongue tie fixed so breastfeeding wasn't as painful. And then bit by bit, we just sort of unwound our way through. And now he's like huge and healthy and happy and I'm not in pain anymore. And my milk came in at four months magically. And here we are. How's your mental and physical state? I mean, I think pretty good. Pretty good. I started sleeping. So we we finally – we don't sleep in the same room anymore. So sometimes he's in the bedroom and I'm on the couch. Sometimes he's in the living room and I'm in the bedroom. But if you want to sleep train your kid, the key is not sleeping in the same room because if they can smell you, they want boobs. Right. So that's been – like sleeping has been a game changer. So I'm sleeping in from like 12 to 8 sometimes and that feels – on the days that I can do that – Life is amazing. And I wake up and I meditate and I'm doing like the seven minute workout these days because that's about all I have. But I've been working out almost every day. And if I can meditate and work out, then I can basically handle all of it. I also have a ton of help. My mom is with us right now. And so for me, three adults to one baby feels like a winning combination. God bless parents of twins. God bless single parents. I mean, really, God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. It is tough. Um, but I'm also, you know, book launch, running a company and with the baby. So I like the amount of help that we have. But I feel good right now. That's huge. Mm-hmm. I think about my mom ran a holistic health care center when I was in high school. And I remember on she was, you know, the office manager, forget the title. And on her bulletin board, I had post-its that said, eat, pee, walk, 
you know, yoga because she was running this place, but she wasn't taking advantage of any of its perks and she wasn't eating or going for a walk or peeing in the middle of the day. So I wonder with this much stress in your life and Mm -hmm. much going on, how do you make sure to prioritize yourself and your meditation practice? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm not perfect at it, obviously. But again, I have a lot of help. I have two life coaches, one who helps me with my business and one who helps me with my relationship. And there was a day about, I don't know, three weeks ago where I we had a session and I was just crying, crying, crying. And I was like, I just feel like I'm overwhelmed and I feel tired and I'm working too much and I feel like a hypocrite because here I am publishing this book called Stress Less, Accomplish More. And I am working so much and stress, I'm, I'm, I'm stressed. And and so it just felt like I was being a hypocrite. And then any anytime I was feeling sad or overwhelmed rather than feeling it, I was like, well, I'm not allowed to feel this because I'm a meditation teacher. And so then I was kind of stifling my own emotions. And and so then I put myself in a very strict program of exercise minimum four times a week, meditation twice a day, non-negotiable, sleep as much as possible. And sometimes, you know, that's not that much, but I'm getting like at least six hours a night and sometimes eight And I just, I mean, they've gone because of the level of demand that I'm under and because of the bigness of this time of my life, it's non-negotiable. My self-care is non-negotiable. I feel like this is when I need it the most. And if that means me doing squats while I'm holding my baby, then I do it. If that means that I have to go into the lobby of my building to meditate while, you know, baby's crying with my mom, then I do it. If it means that it has to be 10 minutes instead of 20, like, so it's not perfect for sure, but I, I have to take care of myself right now. Yeah. I have a client who's a mom coach, and she always talks about the concept of if she doesn't take care of herself, then she can't take care of her kids. And she said that from day one of having twins, that she had to make sure that she was a priority too. Yes. And I don't think that most people look at it that way, but it is so important. Yes. You cannot pour from an empty cup. And when you were the mom, you were literally the cup. Like if you're nursing, if you're not hydrating and eating food, and if you're super stressed, that is literally going into your baby. And not to stress anybody out about that, but it's like don't feel selfish for taking care of yourself because your your family, your kids, your coworkers, your partner, they do not want you sick, tired, and stressed. That only stresses them out more. So it feels selfish to take care of yourself. It is the least selfish thing that you can do. Thank and you for saying that. All I this agree. just need a little bit of reminding. Yeah, absolutely. So if someone listening is either trying to get pregnant, had a miscarriage, is having a miscarriage, and doesn't have a meditation practice currently – What is your intro to meditation? How would you get someone to learn about meditation and practice themselves? Yeah, so I would say it really truly is one of the most important things you could do if you're trying to get pregnant for whatever reason. I don't know if this is because I'm 39 and recently pregnant or and because the women in my life, because a lot of people get pregnant a little bit later in life in New York City, but I have a lot of people coming to me for fertility advice these days. And I really say the number one thing you got to put on the list is uh, meditation. I mean, yes, check in with your doctor, make sure everything anatomically is cool, but meditation is going to help so, so much. Now, what's happening chemically in the body is if you are stressed, then your body is acidic. You've got adrenaline and cortisol, and that acidic body is not a very hospitable host to a baby. Also, when you start meditating, you start producing dopamine and serotonin, which are alkaline in nature, which is a more hospitable host for a baby. Also, I think on a spiritual level, I feel like there's souls up there that are just waiting to get into the houses of meditators. And as far as a way to start, I mean, one way would be this book. Like one of the reasons that I wrote this book, I spent three and a half years working on it, is to give people an easy access point. It is affordable. It's a couple hours of your time that you invest into reading it. But I actually teach a technique in the book that's very gentle. It's a great starting place. 
If you're not a big reader and you prefer to have your hand held a little bit more, we created this beautiful 15-day training called Ziva Online. It's only 15 minutes a day for 15 days. And once you graduate, you have a mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting practice to take with you. And I would say utilize that time at the end of your meditation to do the manifesting and picture yourself holding the baby, imagine naming the baby. You could even have a conversation with the baby in that excited, chill time after the meditation to just say, hey, I love you. I am ready for you when you are ready. I trust you. I trust your timing. I just want you to know that I'm ready and you are invited whenever you're ready. And and then the other piece of advice I would give is we tend to approach fertility from a very masculine standpoint in the West. You know, very high achieving, successful women have who oftentimes get pregnant a little bit later in life have approached their whole life from this very masculine driven space and there is nothing more feminine than conception. And so we have to cultivate this divine femininity. We have to cultivate this receptivity and and not approach it like, well, I'm going to get pregnant in the next six months and I'm going to try everything I can to get pregnant when I want to on my timeline. It's like, no, we have to surrender. We have to trust that nature has more information than we do. These babies have their own agendas. And with the miscarriage piece, I just see it as these souls coming in and trying on different outfits. You know, they have to make sure that it's a good fit and and sometimes it's not. And that's what the miscarriage is. So rather than feeling like you're a failure or that anything's wrong, it's just that soul's just trying on clothes, just making sure it's a good fit. I love that. And so you mentioned that people are coming to you about fertility stuff. Is it related to meditation and what role meditation can play in their fertility? Or they just want to hear your story? What's that about? I think it's both. I think it's people... Oftentimes it's my students who have seen me go through this journey and then they have a friend who's upset that they can't get pregnant and they say, just talk to Emily. And I think so it's one, an example of getting A, getting pregnant at 39 on your first try, B, getting pregnant on your first try right after a miscarriage, C, knowing the neuroscience and the science of why meditation will help you. And then also I just have all these other witch tools of, you know, there's a book called Spirit Babies, which is super woo-woo and super hippy-dippy, but it gives you a language with which to communicate to these spirits, to these baby spirits before they're in the manifest. And there's also a woman I want to shout out. Her name is Barbara Bizu. She's the woman who did the fertility ceremony. Oh, um, that's yeah. who did it. Yeah, oh my totally. God. I can totally picture it now yes. on video. Yes. And so <laughs> I send so many people to Barbara, but she's just barbarabizu.com. But I mean, all like every one of my friends that I've sent to her, I've gotten pregnant. We all miscarried, but then they got pregnant again. Wow. Yeah. You all miscarried. Well, I mean, it's only a, a yes. cross section of like four or five. But yeah, we got pregnant right away, miscarried, and then got pregnant again. But it's such confirmation that it's a normal thing yeah. and that like most people go through this. Yeah. And to our point at the beginning, there's such a stigma to it. Why? We don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's a book right there. Um, there's something that you've always said that the first time I ever heard you speak always stuck with me, which was the concept around I'll be happy when. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and meditation, how it relates to meditation? Sure. Well, I think also how it relates to fertility, right? Because, whoa, if you're trying to get pregnant, it's real easy to convince yourself that you will be happy once you get pregnant. You will be happy once you have a baby. But the all be happy when syndrome is the mistaken belief that our happiness lies on the other side of some person, place, or thing. A job, a graduation, a degree, a diploma, a zero in the bank account, a pair of shoes, a partner. Uh, and we do this, most people, until we die. You know, I want the bike. I want the car. I want the job. I want the girl. I want the kid. I want the divorce. I want the jet. And and the thing is, our happiness is never found in any external person, place, or thing. It is always found inside of us, and it is always found right now. 
And where this gets tricky is that most people don't have a means by which to access their fulfillment internally. So it's very easy to continue this illusion of the I'll be happy when syndrome. And this is actually, I think, what is leading to big, big problems on this planet, like greed and economic divide and actually climate change. It's us consuming our way to this hypothetical happiness, which is never coming on the other side of any anything external. And so the way meditation affects this is that it's actually giving you a self-sufficient means by which to access your own happiness internally. And then you start delivering that to your day, to your desires, to your to-do list, instead of approaching your to-do list from a place of, well, once I finish all of this, then I will be happy. And, And so it basically transitions you from being a bag of need looking to be fulfilled, and it turns you into fulfillment looking for need. And that is not an insignificant switch because think about it, even going into parenting, if you're going into a, like becoming a fucking parent from a place of neediness, like I'm unhappy. And once you, once I get a baby, then I will be happy. That is too much pressure to put on a child and it will never happen. Like that, that fulfillment is never going to come. If anything, you better be fulfilled, know how to fill yourself up because my goodness is is it, you know, being a parent is a constant pouring, 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 giving, giving, giving of your time, your energy, your body when you're a mom. And so it's like we we got to reframe the paradigm a little bit. We have to become self-sufficient for our own happiness and then utilize our relationships as a means by which to deliver that fulfillment. I love that so much. Such a good note to end on. So can you tell us a little bit about where people can find you, buy your book, and go through your courses? Yes. So the book is available anywhere books are sold. You can do one-click ordering on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, all of those places. It's on Audible as well. I did the audiobook. So oh, if you that's like so cool. The love that. sounds of my voice, I read the Audible. So that's a great place to start. And then we also have our online and live trainings are available at zivameditation.com. And that's Z-I-V-A, which is a Sanskrit word that means bliss. Did we start with that? We did. It's also a Hebrew name that means one who is radiant or kind. I didn't know that. That's yeah. interesting. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and sort of sharing this story that's raw and real, but what a lot of people are going through and I think really will resonate with everyone. So thank you. It is my pleasure. Thanks for asking these questions. Yeah. I'm really excited to share that I've teamed up with The Mighty to create a community for you, my listeners, to connect with me, other listeners, past and upcoming guests, and people living with or affected by invisible illness. If you want to have a conversation about the topics addressed on the show, head over to mgty.co slash made visible. Again, that's mgty.co slash made visible. And I hope to connect with you over there. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.